Coming up this hour, we're going to talk a little Jerry Falwell news, and we're joined by Michael Johnson, president of the Slavic Gospel Association. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey everyone, happy Friday. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. A couple of brief things here. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. And wherever it is you get your podcast. I'm going to start bribing people, by the way, to go subscribe, rate, and review. I wonder if that, I don't have anything to bribe people with, but uh, do you have any, any suggestions for bribery options, Brian? Uh, you know, some burned chocolate chip cookies, something like that. Okay. We can get, them. We'll get them. Why do you got to start on that note? We were having such a good day. <laughs> Keep the theme for the week. <laughs> oh, gosh. Anyone who's like joining in for the first time is super confused by that comment. That is true. I'm confused and I even know what you're talking about. All right. So, uh, <laughs> let's, let's just get into it. Shall we? Um, sure. before I play this audio, why don't you fill people in a little bit with regards to the, uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. debacle thus far? Yeah, and in the two years we've done this show, or the year and a half, this is the fourth or fifth incident we've talked about with Jerry Falwell Jr. And he is an important, a vastly important figure in evangelicalism because he is the president of Liberty University. Uh, and so he's had uh, a couple different things where people called him to task. And then just the other day, uh, he posted and then took down from Instagram, his own personal Instagram, a picture uh, of him and a woman posing with their pants unzipped and smiling. And he came out with, uh, and he's holding something that he claims is just black water. Other people have thought otherwise about what he was holding on a yacht. And uh, people are again going, man, how, why can this guy kind of be Teflon? Like he seems to be able to do whatever he can do that other people at a school like Liberty would never be able to do. And uh, continually calling in the question. So Representative Mark uh, Walker uh, called for his resignation over his, quote, appalling behavior. And I think what you're going to play here in a second is a radio interview that Jerry Falwell Jr. called into to yeah. kind of explain what happened. So it's only about a minute. He uh, he called into Lynchburg, Virginia radio station WLNI on Wednesday in an attempt to explain the photo. And uh, here are his words. Please. Uh, and I'm just going to throw it to you. What was up with that picture on Instagram? You know, it was weird because she could, she was she's pregnant, so she couldn't get her she couldn't get her pants up, and <laughs> so I was like trying to like my I had on a pair of jeans that I haven't worn in a long time, so I couldn't get mine zipped either, and so <laughs> and so I just put my belly I just put my belly out like hers, and it was just um she's my wife's assistant and she's a sweetheart, and I should never put it up and embarrass her because, um, anyway, I, I've apologized to everybody, and I promise my kids I'm going to try to be, I'm going to try to be a good boy from here on out. <laughs> All right, so and this, is it with this TV show, this, this Trader Park Boys thing? Yeah, whatever, whatever. <laughs> it, was guy, it was the costume party on the bus, oh. uh, and we, we were on vacation, and anyway, long story short, it was just uh, just just in good fun. That's it. All right, Brian. So uh, first blush, what do you what do you think of that? I again think that he uh, he kind of has carte blanche to do what he wants. And again, did he do something illegal? Absolutely not. But uh, but what is held up for the faculty and the students at Liberty? Like I've got friends that went to Liberty, and they're they're kind of. Um, 
uh, code of conduct is one of the stricter ones around. And so he just almost seems to continually be flaunting it, whether it be uh, a couple months ago where a, a lot of people at Liberty got mad over his post um, uh, that was racially insensitive, uh, the coronavirus stuff he's done. Uh, and now this, like, it's just really bad taste. Like you, um, again, did he do anything illegal? Absolutely not. But you're looking at it going, man, this is yet another black eye, in my opinion, for Liberty University, for a president who keeps doing it over and over again and doesn't, quite frankly, seem to really care. Because uh, honestly, honestly, man, I don't know. Maybe I'm just cynical. But at the end of his interview, when he said, I'll be a good boy, tell me that did that that sounded like completely not genuine and uh, just kind of like, OK. And so, you know, but the but the leadership of liberty has proven that they don't really care and, and they are OK as long as the school is continuing to grow and make money and do other stuff. And so I'd be surprised if anything happened to him here. Yeah, the interview, which I don't even think was an interview necessarily. He just called, called in. in. Yep. Yeah. Uh, he just sounded off. Like the, I was like, yep. are you drinking right now? I have no idea. Yep. But yep. obviously, it just, it just, I was thinking about the, the college presidents that I know and respect. I was like, there's just no way in a million years, one, that the photo would have ever existed, two, that they would have called in like that, three, I think the uh, be a good boy thing for me, at the very least, was cheeky. Now, again, uh, you said twice, did he do anything illegal? Absolutely not. He might have. I don't know. I, I don't think I can sure. say absolutely I mean, in not. The picture. In the picture. Right. right. There right. was nothing yeah. illegal going on in the picture. Which, again, you know, it was posted and then deleted, which there's a couple of different yeah. directions we could go here. We could talk about how nothing on the Internet is temporary. It's it's always permanent, especially when you're in a uh, position of authority. We could talk mm-hmm. about apologies and you know, repentance and reprimand. What I kind of want to talk about with the remaining three or so minutes is like public persona. You know, we talk a lot about, we were even talking yesterday, how sometimes the temptation is to like be these fake versions of ourselves online and and pastors can most certainly fall into the same trap where like they're pretending to be much holier, much more righteous, or at the very least much happier or much more put together than they actually are. And so on one hand, we, we tend to say like, that's not authentic, be authentic, be who you really are. And then, you know, this is, again, an extreme example. (laughs) Yeah. This might be closer to who he actually is. Right. And again, like to your point, it wasn't illegal. It was certainly in poor taste. Uh, And again, uh, I don't want to in any way even insinuate that I thought, well, at least he's being genuine. That's not at all. I am curious how you see this kind of playing out in the public discourse. Is there anyone coming to his like ardent? defense right now or is the vast majority of people like oh at the very least this was weird man maybe worse what what do you uh what do you hear and see out there yeah what i see is complete i haven't seen anybody come to his defense um and here's why also i think this is a big deal when you talk about public perception is uh jerry falwell for better for worse and some of us this might make us angry but it's just the truth uh, he is one of the figureheads that non-Christians view evangelicalism through, right? He's right. He's out there. And I've quite frankly seen this story posted, reposted and commented on more by non-Christian uh, places on Twitter and Facebook than by, uh, you know, this isn't just a like uh, a Christian bubble thing here, but there's a lot of people and I've seen more comments about quote unquote, here's evangelicalism for you. And that's why these are really big deals because Trinity, uh, sorry, Liberty being a huge school, uh, seems to let him get, just do whatever he wants, this kind of stuff. And he's out there, 
you know, he's on the cable news networks, whatever else. And so people outside the church are going, well, what, why would I ever want to be part of that? And so when you talk about public perception, uh, I haven't seen many people come to his defense, but I've certainly seen a lot of people already using his behavior. And this is yet another example of it uh, to paint with a broad brush, all of evangelicalism. And I think uh, that should sadden us at the very least that should sadden us. And it's not necessary. And I wish Liberty would do something about it. Well, and maybe they are. I have no, I haven't seen any statement from the school. This is a a discussion we've had in a number of different arenas where if the person is valuable enough to the organization, uh, they tend to get much stricter reprimands. You know, we've talked about in professional sports, so-and-so did something awful, but you know, the leadership is like, well, he's a pretty good running back. You know, (laughs) there's unfortunately a, a similar type of thread and tone in a lot of evangelicalism. We're like, well, Okay, yeah, that was awful, but he's a heck of a fundraiser. Like, you really, you know, I mean, I wonder if there are people that are kind of existing right now in two parts of their brain saying, yeah, I do condemn the activity, but the ultimate good that I feel like we can do through this institution or through this school is maybe the higher, greater good I need to aim toward. And uh, I don't know, man, that that ten- it's unfortunate that anyone even needs to navigate or thread that needle because uh, right. I think I think you're right. At the very least, for, especially for the people from a distance are associating all of Christendom with behavior like that. Uh, I think that's sad. That's saddening at the very least. And I think it shows that we have a lot of work to do coming up next. Here's a title that I, I found really interesting. Guilt ridden cancel culture has no foreseeable solution. That's coming up next year on the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Well, hi again, everyone. It is good to hmm, see you, hear you. Good to be with you. That's what I want to say. And uh, I am thrilled that you are joining us either via the radio, the the magic of radio transmission, or via the podcast or some other platform. I'm not sure how you're doing that, but uh, a couple of things to let you know about. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, and wherever it is you get podcasts. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, and reviewing. What better gift could you give us this weekend than subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast? Even if it's just a smiley face or a thumbs up, we would take it. All of that does help us out a whole lot. Brian, a, a topic that you and I have talked a lot about that I don't I don't think I could have imagined a year and a half ago we would talk about as much as we have, but it's this idea of cancel culture. And the headline simply reads, guilt-ridden cancel culture has no foreseeable solution. And my buddy Andrew posted this actually. And uh, he said, my friend, here's one of the sharpest thinkers I know. This article is a penetrating analysis on the connections between the so-called death of God and the current, quote, cancel culture we're living in, a culture that is terrifying for how widespread, ever-changing, and exacting it is. And he includes uh, a number of quotes from the article. So I decided to give it a read myself. And it is pretty fascinating. What is going on here in this blog post? Yeah, let me start. I believe it's by uh, Eric Hyde. He writes, Uh, You certainly don't need religion to have a sense of guilt. You don't even need religion to be totally overcome by guilt. All you need is a sense of an ideal self, some version of a hero project going on in your head, and you're a lifelong candidate for guilt. Mm. The atheist is always tempted to believe guilt is somehow an invention of religion. Following Freud's logic, religion is responsible for repressing sexuality And hence, we are neck deep in a myriad of neurotic disorders. Today, psychologists develop endless theories of causes and cures for guilt. Other irreligious types are persuaded that guilt is something like an evolutionary hiccup, some defect in brain wiring specific to the human species, and that religion serves as a positive restraining factor for people too weak to overcome it. 
But then there's Christian theology, which holds that guilt is a full orb spiritual psychic uh, response to turning one's back on God. Guilt is directly tied to sin, and sin is directly dealt with by the forgiveness which can come but from God alone. But we're no longer a Christian society, he writes. We're experiencing today what Nietzsche feared would come once society had, quote, killed God. He saw that people would not be able to simply abandon guilt, but would instead inherit the notion of guilt without the religious means to deal with it. This would enact a hellish existence that Nietzsche was probably quite happy to have avoided. Uh, no sooner did our, the- our society throw off Christianity than it dove headlong into the most complex system of virtue coding ever developed in the history of mankind, a rapidly changing system that holds all people to account with deadly seriousness for each new code violation developed the day before yesterday. Hmm. Something never considered an offense suddenly appears as conflicting with the new standard and renders the offender, quote, canceled. Virtue is gained by canceling others for their sin. Social sins is defined by the omniscient gods of social media. And the more one cancels or attempts to cancel, the higher up one is allowed to climb out, uh, climb out of their own sickness of guilt and shame. Without a legitimate forgiver, nobody is safe. So that's a mouthful, man. That's a lot uh, kind of tracing the origins of guilt, especially non-Christian guilt and how it ties into cancel culture. That's a, that's a pretty fascinating start right there. What do you uh, think of his premise? It, I've never thought of it, but it sure makes a lot of sense um, where cancel culture comes from. And, and um, you know, uh, yeah, I, th- I think it makes a lot of sense. I don't know exactly where it's going to go. I'm kind of reading along with this, but what are, what are your thoughts when you first read it? You said you found it really fascinating. Yeah, I like what he said toward the end of what you just read. Uh, the more one cancels or attempts to cancel, the higher up one is allowed to climb. I think that is a, a notion that I hadn't necessarily considered, although it is the kind of thing you and I are both youth pastors that we often teach kids that, hey, knocking someone down doesn't actually lift you up any higher at all. Like mm-hmm. that's a junior high principle that I feel like in youth group circles the world over, we've been saying for quite some time. But it does seem, though, it's almost – it almost has like a video game quality to it. Like, oh, the more people I knock down or, you know, am responsible for canceling, uh, the higher up my legitimacy or at the very least platform. And let's be honest, like platform in a lot of ways is the currency people are, are most seeking after anyway. Mm-hmm. So, man, if I'm the one that brought down pastor so-and-so or I'm the one that brought down, you know, a certain celebrity. Now, the other side of this is that a number of the people that you and I have talked about who have been quote unquote canceled in my mind deserve to be canceled and probably should have been canceled decades ago. Part of his premise here is that like, Oh, it's an ever changing target. I'm like, well, sometimes it's uh, brand new information though. Sometimes it's something that was not acceptable in the eighties and we just didn't know what was going on. New information has come out and now they're in jail. You know, like that's a, that's a different kind of canceling than what I think he's getting after here. But I like what he says next, though. He says, Christianity understands guilt as a result of turning from God. But uh, and this is the important distinction. Sin is ultimately an offense against God alone, whether the sin is directly against him or any aspect of his creation, including oneself and therefore ultimately only forgivable by him. Today, with the advent of the, quote, death of God, there is no metaphysical root of sin or any ultimate source of forgiveness. Far from finding personal peace and societal utopia through abandoning Christianity, we have been stuffed deeper into the prison of sin consequences. Again, this is sort of like uh, I thought of the story of the friends that lowered their paralyzed buddy through the roof with a very you know, obvious physical kind of need before them, and Jesus forgives his sins. And, of course, the people present are like, you know, 
either confused or infuriated if they're the religious elite. Right. And he's sort of showing here ultimately like, yeah, how how can this man, Jesus, this rabbi, Jesus, forgive this person's sins who has not never met him before? So by their metrics, there's never sinned against Jesus. So how does he have the right to forgive them? Jesus is showing, I think, in some beautiful ways, his positional authority. Like, yeah. like if you if you were to if you were to punch me. And then our producer, John, said, don't worry, Brian, I forgive you. I'd be like, wait a minute, you don't, you don't, you don't get to forgive him. He punched, he punched me. But part of what I think he's, he's stating here is that without, uh, without a fundamental sense of, of where guilt and forgiveness really uh, comes from, we're just kind of doomed to perpetuate the same cycles. Yeah, absolutely. He goes on later in the article to say, without the luxury of finding one's identity and peace in the forgiveness of God, what is one to do? The answer today seems to be exactly what Freud here describes. The need for satisfying this guilt, uh, this feeling of guilt, leads one to desire punishment, to render their religious precepts ever and ever more strict, more exacting, and also more petty. In short, the the instinct is moral and ethical puritanism, uh, which is a fascinating um, uh, paragraph there because it says, uh, without the luxury of finding one's identity and peace in the forgiveness of God, that then everything gets kind of thrown off, which then for the Christ follower still says, how am I doing at anchoring my identity in the, and peace in the forgiveness of God? Just because we say we believe it doesn't mean that we're living it, right? And so, uh, but I think tying those together, it does a really good job here tying together uh, the forgiveness we find through God and the forgiveness or the other ways that our lives kind of go philosophically with Freud and Nietzsche and all these others. Yeah, let me just read how he closes it. He says, the system is about as stable and easy to navigate as the U.S. tax code. Even if one stays up to date with the daily changes and is able for a time to pilot the minefield of the new virtue system, eventually a wire is tripped. Once tripped, there is no redemption. One cannot be made, quote, anew through repentance. One can never shake a slip from the past. Missing the mark is a permanent flaw, and the person, not the sin, must be deleted. It's not pretty, and there is no foreseeable solution. As the rules gain in complexity and pettiness, guilt runs alongside at an equal pace. At some point, neurosis is a given. That, to me, is, I, I think, mm. probably right on par with the title. I don't know what the solution is, because it does feel like it has uh, continued its acceleration. And m- even my own assessment, there are certainly people that I've seen, like, oh, yeah, maybe they deserve to be canceled. And then other people, and then you have to be, you have to be careful about who you even admit this to. You're like, ah, that might have been a bit much. Because you admit online that if the mob was wrong, well, then you, you're likely to get canceled yourself as well. And I think yep. for the Christ follower, there's a very, very unique challenge ahead of us that I think is really, really important for us to continue talking about. Well, coming up next, the president of the Slavic Gospel Association, Michael Johnson, is going to join us and talk to us about some of the amazing stuff that their organization is doing today. And uh, that's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. A couple of places you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. Also, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. And wherever it is you get podcasts. If you're the podcast and type, you've heard me say it before. If you wouldn't mind, subscribing, rating, and reviewing does really help us out a whole lot. And we're super grateful for all of you who have already done that. I'm absolutely thrilled to have on the line right now Michael Johnson, president of the Slavic Gospel Association. Welcome to the show, sir. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's our pleasure. Would you just take a minute or two and introduce yourself to our audience? 
Okay, uh, again, I'm Michael Johnson, president of a ministry called the Slavic Gospel Association. We were established in 1934 by a Russian immigrant. Uh, I've, um, uh, I, my background is I got saved in the Jesus movement in California back in the early 70s. Hmm. Uh, I ended up as an advertising executive in New York City for many years, worked on some of the, the largest consumer brands in the world. I took a short-term missions trip to Albania. And lo- the Lord began to work in my heart, and back in the early 90s, I came to this ministry as a vice president. I was here for seven years, left for 13 years, and consulted with many ministries, helping them with their fundraising and marketing activities. Wow. And they brought me back uh, in, um, in May of 2017 as the president. Wow. So, um, so I'm excited to be here, and I can't believe I get to do this. Uh, absolutely. I'm curious, Michael, just uh, give our people uh, just kind of a thumbnail sketch as to what the Slavic Gospel Association does. Well, for many years, we were involved in the covert distribution of books and Bibles during the years under communism. We also had uh, a radio ministry. We were broadcasting Christian programming into those countries uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, Right around the time when the when the communist government declared that they were going to eradicate all forms of religion from those countries and put the last Bible under glass in a museum in St. Petersburg, wow! When the country opened up. We connected with the largest group of evangelical churches in those countries, the Baptist churches, and so we do three things primarily: we train their pastors, we help them build their training infrastructure with seminaries and Bible institutes. And then we sponsor about 350 or so national church planting families sent out in the previously unreached towns and villages. And then we equip those, their churches as well as a much larger network of churches. We're connected to 6,350 churches across the 10 countries of the former Soviet Union with resources, uh, humanitarian aid, uh, evangelistic materials. Uh, we send thousands of kids to children's camp every year, uh, Christian children's camp, um, and uh, all for the purpose of equipping those churches uh, to meet both physical and spiritual needs of the people in their communities so that people might come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Wow, that's remarkable. I'm looking at some notes here. It looks like you've distributed more than 1.6 million meals to 20,000 needy families. And the part that I really love is that it looks like you're partnering with over 6,000 different churches. I always love ministries that that kind of link arms with the churches that are already right. sort of like in the trenches doing the work, building the relationships. I, I'm wondering, with those kinds of statistics, do you have any any stories that kind of stand out to you? Uh, well, we, we have a lot of, uh, yeah, we're receiving stories. We, we have infrastructure all throughout those countries. We can get resources to any part of those countries uh, mm. uh, because of the network of churches that we have. So uh, we created a program called Christ Over COVID, Much Prayer, Much Power. We have thousands of people praying all around the world uh, for the situation in those countries. And those churches are reaching out to people who are in desperate need right now. Hmm. So um, just just a couple of, I mean, I've got a number of different stories here, one of which we do a lot of work in the war zone of eastern Ukraine. Uh, there's a woman, Lyra, 38 years old. She has two young sons. Um, she lost her job, has no means of support at all. Uh, she resorted to prostitution to support her children. Uh, she connected with the local churches. They were able to provide food and humanitarian aid to her. They opened themselves up to, uh, to the church. Now she's attending church, and the kids are in Sunday school, and her life is being changed, and now she's uh, following Jesus. Wow. Uh, in Moscow, there's a church called Russian Bible Church. Uh, they connect with a lot of young people and families and um, and professionals. Uh, when the lockdown came in Moscow, everybody was stuck in their apartments. They opened up a big Zoom uh, uh, ministry. 
They've been doing evangelistic services on an ongoing basis. Hundreds of people have connected to that church. Many of them have come to faith in Christ. And many, there's a long line of people waiting for that church to reopen so that they get baptized. So God, I believe this is the greatest opportunity for the proclamation of the gospel in those countries mm. since the wall came down and the churches believe the same thing. Wow. I'm curious how you would just assess the state of the churches in that region. What could you tell us about the evangelical churches over there? Well, those churches uh, are being built upon a foundation of great um, sacrifice and martyrdom. Mm. And so, uh, so they are very committed and dedicated uh, to reaching their nations for Christ. Hmm. Uh, logistically, it's kind of difficult because R- Russia is such a large country; it's hard to get to all the areas. Uh, but they just have a tremendous dedication. But when when the wall came down, you know, they, Russia missed the Reformation, so they needed to get training. So, you know, we we've been involved in training thousands and thousands of pastors who are now who have been sent out and uh, doing church planting and whatnot. There's still a lot of work to be done. Um, but I, I, I would say that the state of the church is very strong hmm. and, um, and God is opening the hearts of the people in those countries to his word. There was a recent, recent Pew study that measures interest in God among all the European countries, um, countries like France and Italy. They're like oh, from 1991 to 2019, they're down you know, 26 and 21 per, uh, percentage point. Russia and Ukraine up 12 percentage points, um, and, um, and and let me see, Russia's up 16, uh, Ukraine mm-hmm. is up 12. So there's a tremendous openness to God and spiritual things in those countries now. We're just trying to get more and more people raised up so we can send out and um, and get the word of God into people's hands and uh, and people get saved because because there is it's difficult to say, characterize it, whether it's be a revival or an enlightenment, hmm. but God is moving in those countries now in a mighty way. And hmm. we're in the middle of it and we're equipping those. Uh, so, so we're equipping those churches with funds so that they can purchase food locally, drop hmm. them into food packets. They're getting the list of the people in their communities who are in need. They're going out, knocking on doors, distributing food, sharing the gospel with them. And we're seeing many people come to faith in Christ. Wow, that's remarkable. I, I don't know if we mentioned this or not, but Brian and I are actually both pastors here in Chicagoland. And so sometimes okay. we'll, we'll, we'll admit on the show that like at times it can feel difficult to, to see the world outside of our bubble, you know? Oh, yeah. And uh, of course, like Beirut has been on our radar for incredibly tragic reasons. But even the stuff that you're telling us in this segment, there's a, there's this great global need that I think sometimes is easy for us to miss when we're sort of hunkered down in our own kind of isolated echo chambers. I'm wondering in the last minute or so that we have left, really two things. One, how could people get involved or support you all in what you're doing? And two, what are some ways that our listeners can be praying for you guys? Well, um, come to our website, sga.org slash COVID, uh, and you can sign up. We're, we, we, we're doing five days a week during the week. Uh, we send out um, uh, stories just like I shared with you now. Hmm. Uh, with specific prayer, prayer requests and a devotional. And if you can get as many people praying with us as possible, we have thousands of people praying, that would be great, and it'll connect you to the ministry. But also, if people's, people are interested in financially supporting the work, um, you know, there's an opportunity to do that as well. But our first priority is prayer. That was the priority of our, of our um, founder, and, um, and, um, and that's what we're encouraging. One last thing I just want to say. I got a report the other day, and it's a great little report. Uh, from one of the pastors who was doing the distribution in Siberia. One day, as we were distributing food packages, we felt down, and the enemy attacked us. With Mm. thoughts, all was in vain. We prayed for the Lord to send us people whom we could really help. After we said amen, 
a dove flew right into our car window mm. as we drove. And we took it as a sign of approval from the Lord. Thanks and glory be to him for all things. That's, that's the heart of the people there. And God is faithful. You know, he really yeah. Absolutely. And that other voice you're hearing is Michael Johnson, president of the Slavic Gospel Association. You can learn more at sga.org slash COVID. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was fun. I appreciate it. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Well, hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. It is Friday, so there's a lot more goofiness than usual, at least out of me. Are you... uh, are you feeling loopy most weekends now, Brian, or are all those categories sort of up for grabs? It's all different, right? Although now it's getting normal after five months, but it's still just uh, it, the rhythms of all that we've known for the last however long we've been pastors still feels off. So, yeah, like right now, if you're like, does it feel like Friday? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of a non-answer, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I don't know that it does. How about you? It just does all feel off, doesn't it still? Oh, yeah, for sure. It is different now, though, because we we film our messages on Monday mornings, which is only a day removed from our normal Sunday gathering. So it almost feels like in a weird way, that's the the prep day or the day that I'm kind of you know preparing for. Uh, but it does still feel strange. I was listening to have you heard Stephen Carter's crafting character podcast yet? No, you told me about it. I haven't listened to it yet. It's it's phenomenal. It's a, I mean, it's for a very particular audience. It's the crafting character of preaching. So it's they spend the first half kind of talking about the craft and the preparation and the details and all of that. It's it's remarkable. And he interviews some vastly different people. And so their their preparation styles are all over the place and their philosophies of ministry and communication are completely different. It's wonderful. And then they talk about the character, which I'm so grateful for, because I feel like I've read a thousand books on like the art and craft of preaching, which I love talking about and I love learning about. There are very few people, very few spaces that are really unpacking like the character piece mm-hmm. that I think and he thinks is so essential to, you know, godly preaching. This isn't a segment about that, but either way, uh, the Crafting Character Podcast with Steve Carter is wonderful. Why was I talking about that? Oh, yeah. They were talking about, you know, how difficult it is to preach to a camera. And I felt way less insane. I was like, oh, these world-class communicators are also really struggling for a one take at the camera kind of preaching. It's very, it's very, very weird, but I felt I took some comfort knowing like, okay, other people feel the same way. So have you felt that way or are you liking it? No, it feels weird. Have I told you yet? We are, we are attempting a very small to be mostly online this weekend, but a very small regathering in our worship center, really small, really spread out with masks on. And I'm very curious of how that's going to go this week. So we're actually going to have some people in there. But yeah, all through this, it's just been really weird. I don't like preaching to a camera. Uh, I don't think people like watching me on a camera. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's uh, probably a lot of reasons we could unpack for people why preaching to a camera is weird. Yeah, it it really is. Just weird. Just weird. But it is what is. Hey, if this had been a generation ago, we would have had no options. So we should at least be thankful for this. That's true. That's very, very true. Well said. Okay, so Dan White Jr., he's an author and a teacher. He's he's a great follower on social media. I'm going to read just a short post that he gave. I mean, this is just a couple weeks ago now. Um, but I, I want to get some of your thoughts, Brian. And this doesn't yeah. just apply to pastors or churches, but I, I like I like the general kind of direction and arc of what he tends to post. He says, as we were just talking, COVID has impacted Sunday-focused, building-centric, preaching-oriented churches. It's time to embrace the disruption. So that alone, I think a lot of people would say, yes, it most certainly has. Now, how we actually navigate a way forward, 
is anyone's right. guess because people I imagine are very divided on, you know, what is the best way forward. So he's saying it's impacted the Sunday focused building centric preaching oriented churches. It's time to embrace the disruption. And he offers a couple of options, uh, decentralized gatherings, scatter leadership teams, create discipleship pathways, fund localized groups, deploy fivefold gifting and disperse training and resourcing. There's no right or wrong answer, Brian, but what, what do you think of those suggestions? Uh, yeah, I think they're, they are interesting, especially the, the decentralized gatherings and scatter leadership teams. I was just at, uh, I was just sitting outside at Panera with a buddy of mine from our church and we were talking about just the frustrations around the last couple of months, just for all churches, just, uh, because, you know, he's right that it's impacted Sunday focus, building centric, preaching oriented churches, but that's still the expectation of a lot of people. So helping people bridge these kind of frustrations is difficult, but we've also found that some of the gatherings, right? The decentralized gatherings, people aren't, people just aren't ready to be together with other people a lot of times. Right. And so are they online? Are they what? Um, but I think he's right. I do think he's right in the sense of how we've always done church on Sunday morning is like the main thing uh, in the building around a preacher. Like you can't do it anymore. And so even if you say, ah, he's wrong, it's that's still what it's supposed to be. You're like, OK, well, what are you going to do now when you can't do that? You literally can't do it. Yeah. Uh, and I think all of us are wrestling with it. Uh, what do you think he means on this list um, by fund localized groups? What where what do you uh, see as that? I mean, again, it's just a Facebook post, so I don't want to put words in his mouth. My guess is he would, especially if we're decentralizing the gathering. So if you have something more like house churches scattered all throughout the city, I could see based on what I've seen from other stuff of him, a, a real emphasis on like choosing uh, organizations and ministries already at work in those communities, in those neighborhoods and like coming alongside them. I think oftentimes the church, for better or for worse, has has had a pretty big chip on its shoulder and wanting its name or brand on the thing mm -hmm. that they're a part of, you know? So even if there's mm -hmm. already a counseling center in town, we're building one. If there's already like a food packaging place, we're starting a new one, you know, there, there, there can tend to be, I think some of that almost competitive type of posture. And I, my guess is that part of what he would, he would uh, is implying here is like, yeah, find the people, the localized groups, that are already working in your communities and and come alongside them. And I don't I don't necessarily think he's knocking, you know, some of these more like national movements. Um, but he does, and I think he does a really good job often articulating the significance of the local, which is mm -hmm. a lot of what we talked about this week, even. I think COVID is gonna force that hand in a big way that we're gonna have yeah. to be we're gonna be forced, I think, more and more to think locally. And I think the church should in a lot of ways be leading the way there, to be honest. Yeah, and I think uh, what's becoming obvious as well is that I, I do think a lot of us pastors and a lot of churches were just like, okay, we have to weather this storm until everything goes back to normal, right? Like we're mm. just going to flip the light switch back on. And I just think it's becoming uh, really clear that there's not going to be a just flip the light switch back on and it's going to be normal anytime soon, if at all. Uh, and so I do think at the very core of what he's talking about is here is we can all pretend that it's going to all just come back to the way it was, or we can start thinking through and go, what, what sticks and what needs changing? And uh, I think every church and every business, everybody just needs to be uh, having those conversations because the feeling I think that we had in the beginning, like, okay, let's get through COVID and then we'll all go back to how it was, schools, churches, businesses, restaurants, whatever else. It's just not going to happen that way. 
right? And I think that's tricky because there's still so much that we don't know. So I hear a lot of people say, oh, we could pretend that things are going to go back to normal. And I know that the people that feel strongly that we eventually will get back to normal. So for them, it doesn't feel like pretending. For them, it feels like patience. Like it feels like, no, I, I think we we have established enough that even if it's just a you know a pseudo year off we will eventually kind of drift back into or intentionally go back to the way things were that's kind of why i wanted to bring this up because i think you could read what dan is saying here either as hey this is the inevitable trajectory so let's just get on board or you could read it as hey this momentary pause is giving us an opportunity an unprecedented opportunity to rethink some of our structures and strategies but my guess is, you know, of those six options, there are probably a lot of people like, I don't want to do those things. Exactly. I don't I don't want decentralized gatherings. I don't want to scatter leadership teams. I don't want to create discipleship pathways. I mean, I think some of those things are are certainly central enough to kind of the ethos of the church that we would say, at least in public, oh, yeah, that's a good thing. But certainly not elevating that above, you know, the Sunday morning experience or things like that. I, I don't know. I think it's a really interesting time and it, it's it been curious to wa- even watch or be in the room, not the room, the digital room, the Zoom room, when people are thinking through not only how can we think strategically about the future, but how do we still pastor our people well who are feeling a certain sense of disequilibrium and they're feeling, you know, a bit frustrated or lost. And it's a very, it's a very interesting tension to be holding right now. And either way, I know this is a list that uh, some people will care a lot about and other people We'll just want to fast forward on the podcast. We, uh, we'd love to know what you think. We've posted this on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show, and you can go and weigh in there. Coming up next, a pretty well-known evangelist, Todd White, has kind of making headlines for repenting lately. We're going to talk about that coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. up this hour what is todd white repenting of and then later finally some good news you're listening to the common good everyone welcome back to the common good i don't have a lot of time so i'm not going to tell you about all the particulars but you know they are there i've been seeing my news feed blowing up as of late with uh, todd white are you familiar with todd white brian by the way I know the name, but I don't know much of him. I do not. He's certainly like if you Google search an image of him, you're like, oh, yeah, that guy It's dreaded. He's an evangelist, travels all over the place, gotcha. uh, has a really wild story. We can maybe get into that a little bit later. But he's been I saw a bunch of posts of him repenting. Todd White repents. Todd White repents. You know, and in this culture, in this day yeah. and age, sort of like, oh, my gosh, what what is what has happened? What is going on? So uh, I want to play for you a little audio of him kind of addressing exactly that. This is hard for people, huh? It's hard for me. It's hard for me. Because I feel like I haven't preached the whole gospel. And I repent. I repent. This hit me. Did you ever hear of Ray Comfort? Amazing. Just amazing. Like I, I was blown away. Now I don't I didn't read a whole bunch of stuff, but this right here blew me away. It's just a scenario that that rocked me to the core. I'm gonna read this to you. You guys ready? Okay. I just, this, this right here like overtook me. I was like, oh my gosh, because it's how you come in. When you come into the gospel because you came in for a better life, you've come in for the wrong gospel. When you come to Jesus because he's going to give you this and give you this, you really didn't surrender. 
See, what you're saying is that I've come to get this. What you've done is a taste test to see if it's true. It's the same thing as getting a buzz. Well, I'll try this Jesus thing. Maybe there's a buzz in it. (laughs) That's not Jesus. It's full. Your goal as a Christian is to be conformed to his image, is to be transformed into his image, into his likeness, and to actually walk like Christ walked. Jesus didn't despise sinners, but he hated sin, and he addressed it all the time. And he said words like sinners to people that were in sin. Yet he loved them and everybody followed him. What has flip-flopped in the church today? What has flip-flopped? Okay, so so he's clearly, he's someone who communicates a lot and he's kind of having this, he later kind of calls it almost like an awakening. And, uh, yeah. and then he alludes to it there, but he also uh, reads a little bit. He, he has this analogy of uh, parachutes on a plane that I think, I think helps tease out even more so what he's saying here. To an even greater degree, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna play that in a second. But I'd love to know briefly, Brian, what do you think of what he just said there about this sort of posture of repentance? Yeah, you know, again, not having heard much Todd White, so I don't know what his style is, but really emotional, like you said, like it wasn't just oh, you know, point three of the sermon here. I'm repenting of this. It was you could tell that was heartfelt, and that was kind of like, hey, there's something that I've been missing in my own life and my own preaching, clearly coming from the depths of stuff that he's wrestling with for sure. Yeah, and he, I mean, if you know any anything of his story, he was like a drug addict and an atheist okay. for 20 years, and he was at the point of suicide when he had this pretty remarkable experience with God. So he's been sort of just like, you know, to use a a, a term from our childhood, he was like on fire, gotcha. definitely had like an evangelist kind of vibe. Some people, you know, categorize him like as a healer and other people categorize him as a little too health and wealth. And he's he's been starting to read some more like orthodox sources and uh, oh, wow. it's having okay. having like a real real effect on him and so then he he reads this uh this excerpt from Ray Comfort about this analogy of a plane and a parachute and uh, I wanted you to hear it a stewardess gives the first man a parachute and instructs him to put it on because it will improve his flight not understanding how a parachute could, a parachute could possibly improve his flight the first passenger is a little skeptical Finally, he decides to see if the claim is true. After strapping on the parachute, he notices his burdensome weight of the parachute. He has difficulty even sitting upright. Consoling himself with the promise of a better flight, our first passenger decides to give it a little time. Because he's the only one wearing a parachute, some of the other passengers began smirking at him and making fun of him, which only adds to his utter humiliation. Unable to stand it any longer, our friend slumps in his seat, unstraps the parachute, throws it to the floor. Disillusionment and bitterness fill his heart because as far as he's concerned, he was told a lie. Another stewardess gives a second man a parachute, but listen to her instructions. She tells him to put it on because at any moment, he's going to be jumping out of the plane at 25,000 feet. Our second passenger gratefully straps the parachute on. He doesn't notice its weight on his shoulders nor that he can't even sit upright. His mind is consumed with the thought of what will happen if he jumped without it. When other passengers laugh at him, he's thinking, it's not funny, you're gonna need a passenger, you're gonna need a parachute too. The first man's motive for putting on that parachute was solely to improve his flight. As a result, he was humiliated by passengers, disillusioned by an unkept promise, and embittered against the stewardess who gave it to him. As far as he's concerned, he will never put that thing on again. 
he will never have it on his back again. The second man put the parachute on to escape the danger of the upcoming jump because he knew what would happen to him without it. He had a deep-rooted joy and peace in his heart knowing he was, he'll be saved from certain death because he was given the ability to withstand the mockery and he was given the ability to withstand the mockery of the passengers because he knows the end from the beginning. That's crazy. His attitude towards the stewardess who gave him that parachute was one of heartfelt gratitude. That's crazy. Okay, so what did you think of that that word picture there? That's powerful, right? Like, again, we, you and I have talked, it feels like a couple times this week about good stories, how they stick. Uh, we've all been on airplanes and just kind of, uh, just almost the lunacy of, of like, well, I'm not going to have a parachute because other people are making fun of me, but then how you can take that. I, it's a powerful picture. Ray Comfort's good at what he does. And uh, again, still just struck by the passion and, and the, uh, the depth of emotion from Todd White there. I think it's, it's an important message that he's talking about here, especially as you say, he's had a little bit of a health and wealth bent, but now is reading and kind of repenting of that, I think is really powerful. Yeah, some of the, uh, some of the naysayers certainly in years past were a lot of like street healing. And there have been people that have been claiming that uh, those healings maybe aren't necessarily legitimate. Uh, he's talked about some of the, yeah, it's not necessarily fully health and wealth, but certainly in what some would put in kind of the charismatic extreme camp. And okay. it feels like he's sort of like awakening to, to some of what he's missed. And he, and he talks about it and like not preaching the whole gospel, which even that phrase might be surprising to some people. How, how would you describe Brian in like the minute and a half we have left? And there's a couple articles we'll post on the Facebook page, not just right. about him repenting, but also like some people have been really, kind of coming after him. The headline says, shame on you. Todd White says to critics in sermon addressing his repentance. So that's sort of a follow-up <laughs> there that's posted up on our Facebook page. But just to kind of wrap up, he's the whole kind of premise is that he hasn't been preaching the whole gospel. What, what would you say in 60 seconds or less is the whole gospel? Well, I think the part, especially that he's talking about missing is acknowledging the bad news of sinfulness, right? And, and that the bad news uh, helps us then better grasp and understand the good news of what Jesus has done for us. And so I think uh, this acknowledgement that of, of sin and the, the, uh, the results of sin uh, becoming the, the doorway, if you will, to then understanding uh, how amazing the good news is of what Jesus has come and done uh, when he lived and died and rose again. And so uh, as opposed to turn to Jesus and have a better life, a turn to Jesus and all will be made right, or you will, uh, you know, all your problems will go away. I, and I, to hear him repent of that, I think that's what he's getting at, kind of acknowledging um, the bad news side of things. Yeah, and I would add probably a caveat, too. That doesn't necessarily mean, though, that following Jesus doesn't make your life better. I, it's, that's that's right. the, that is sort of the, the contrast or the needle to thread there. But either way, we know it's a bit controversial. We have at least two articles posted up over on the Facebook page. I'd encourage you to watch the whole talk, by the way, because it's at the, at the very least, it's pretty fascinating. But what do you think? What do you think of his repentance? What do you think of the uh, response from the critics? You can do all of that over on the Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. And coming up next, Simply Out of Haven, it simply says, Lament for the COVID Kids. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. If you haven't heard, we have a Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. A couple of things you can do there. One, you can comment on our articles there. We have some... uh, Not to say it's heated is probably overreaching. We have some lively discussion happening over there. You can send us a message. You can like and review and share that page. Any any of that helps us out a whole lot. We're also on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. And wherever it is, you get your podcast subscribing, rating, reviewing. That helps us out a lot, too. I don't mention enough. My apologies, Alexa. You can also ask Alexa. She'll play us for you live on the radio. She'll also find our podcast and play it for you. There's nothing Alexa can't do. Asterix. There's plenty that Alexa can't do. Uh, I want to spend the next two segments actually talking about kids. This is something that you and I have talked anecdotally about a number of times. Your kids are a bit older than my kids. So even our experience right now during COVID has, I imagine, looked pretty different. But there are certainly similarities, mainly like the weight and gravity of being a parent and trying to figure out how do I navigate this with my kids? Has that that been something that you've, you've felt the weight of these last five months, Brian? Oh, absolutely. With the, all the stuff that's different, all the stuff they've lost, different families handling this different ways. It's a, it is a regular conversation for sure. Do you feel like it's something that you're regularly tapped into? Like, are you consistently cognizant of the fact that it's weighing on you or does it feel you were saying a little early in the show, it's like, Oh, it's almost normal now. So I'm not technically, it's not not like you're always on high alert, stressed out, but maybe like a low grade stress or anxiety. Yeah, for sure. It's in fact, you know, most days feel pretty normal and you're this, that, and then, you know, the conversation say comes up about school and all of a sudden you're like, Oh, okay. Or the conversation about whatever else it might be. Right. And you're, you're kind of sucked right back into it. But yeah, life feels pretty normal other than those things. But uh, yeah, like for most families, it is a regular conversation in our household for sure. Uh, so I found a poem. We haven't done this in a while and maybe there's a reason for that. The uh, It's called uh, lament for the COVID kids. It was written a couple of weeks ago. At Haven, Berkeley, I'm not even really sure where I saw this. It says at the beginning here, this lament was composed as a part of an exploration of lament that the Haven community has engaged in throughout the month of July. You can visit their YouTube channel and view all three services held this month that consider the importance of lament in seasons of sustained crisis and begin to practice it together. Uh, If you've been with us for any length of time, you know that lament actually holds a pretty near and dear place in my heart, something that I feel like we've talked about on the show a lot. Aubrey Sampson's book, uh, The Louder Song, has been an incredible resource for me personally in helping better explore this. So if it's okay, I just want to read it right through, and then I'm going to let Brian react to it a little bit. It says, silence settles on this desolate landscape that was once a playground. Fences and gates keep children and their grown-ups away. Swing sits still, only rustled by the breath of breeze. And structures meant to be climbed simply stand somberly. Empty monuments to the mundane magic of play. But what of the miniature hands and feet that used to scamper and climb here? What of the myriad voices that have once rung out in cheerful cacophony? A child's work is play, the important grown-ups have told every concerned parent. But what kind of work is happening in a world where children cannot play? What is the cost of a childhood confined? Where lies the loss of laughter and love? How can a tablet of metal and glass replace the hand of a best friend clasped tight? This is the way to keep them safe, we rightly say. But what is safe about suffocation? What is safe about social deprivation? What is safe in homes that are not sanctuaries, but dens of derision, violence, 
mediation. Kids are resilient, the important grown-ups say, but none who speak these words have nurtured kids through this. None have been the only arms that can hug a haunted child. None have found themselves cast in a one-person show overnight without rehearsal, now playing the part of parent, teacher, best friend, and therapist, too. None have borne witness to the collective trauma of a generation, driven immediately into the digital arms they were only months ago being warned against. None have seen a young population transition their work play into texts and posts and online games and come out resiliently on the other side, still able to run and climb and read and carry on a coherent conversation. None have seen the structures that once shaped the family's life fall apart and been left puzzling with pieces that no longer fit together. Kids may be resilient, but what about those they rely on? Are we resilient enough for this? And what of the learning lost? Classroom learning, choir room learning, cafeteria learning. How will the chasms be closed? Or will this simply remain a continual casualty? The curse of the COVID kids. Oh, my dear children, whom I nurtured in my very body, how I wish I could draw you back into myself, keeping you close and held in the shelter of my being as you await your emergence. How I wish I could expand to be enough for you to inhabit in a way that would comfort and care for you as you develop and grow. But stretch as I might, you are beyond me. My womb is not wide enough. My frame is not strong enough. My breasts are not full enough to nourish you with all that you now need. So I must simply sit here with you and all the questions that can't be answered and all the fears that might be realized. I will sit with you and speak of online games and butterflies. And I will hold you here, both as you cry and as you sing. I will accompany you as my divine parent accompanies me. Praying that spirit breathes on you in the place that still lives free, that wild imagination that is yet untamed and sweet. Perhaps this is the hope of a child's resiliency, the capacity to dream of a world that might yet someday be. All right, Brian, we don't have a lot of time, but I, I would just love to know that this isn't something we often do on the show, but. Sure. What what comes to mind when you hear that? It's haunting to hear them yeah. called COVID kids. <laughs> I mean, right. Uh, what what a beautifully written poem because it really encapsulates the emotion of all that our children uh, have lost, and it's not saying that they shouldn't have. Right? Like it says, there you know, there's a virus out there, and we have right, to protect. Right. But we also have to realize there's a cost on the other side that we have to be talking about and uh, wrestling with. And then I'm I'm grateful how that poem turns to just the role for us as parents that I can't mm. make it better, but I'll sit here with you. I'll listen. I'll cry with you. I'll do everything. And I think it, it really puts a finger on, um, you know, our kids are going to experience this. This is going to mark their lives forever. And right. there's, there's legitimate emotions. I know I have three children and all three of them, their emotions are different around this. Mm. And uh, we have to be okay with that. Like we, it, it's not our job just to make it better. This is a very hard thing. And like you said, school is meant to be gone to and games are meant to be played. And right. uh, we can't like just sugarcoat that for our kids, but instead just need to be there and kind of grieve with them and help them process. I'll tell you what, this, this really hits me for two reasons. One, uh, I tend to really struggle with sort of the, the over the shoulder, like remembering or beholding or sitting in like I'm I'm a I'm an activator I'm an Enneagram three. I like going after new things. I like problem solving. I'm always like, what's the next hill we're taking? And I can do that sometimes almost 
obsessively to the detriment of actually sitting in like, oh, that's right. We're in the midst of something unprecedented and I don't have categories for it. The other thing that I found so beautiful about it, and you kind of touched on it, it is haunting, but it still was life-giving, but it was written as a lament. And I feel like so often the churches shunned lament because, I don't know, Sunday has to be happy. It has to be a celebration. It has to be up, right? Like, I think lament can bring hope just as much as anything else does. And when we when we don't make space for lament, either in our own daily practices or in our corporate gatherings, we we miss some of that richness, some of that, exactly what you were saying, sort of that aha, like, I have been feeling that, or I did sense that in my kids. If we, if it's only ever positive, what did we say yesterday? Uh, Lego lands, everything is awesome, right? Yes, like, yes, yes. When we don't create space for that other side, we almost like rob ourselves of the full breadth of the experience. And uh, I don't know. I, I, I found it really moving, and hopefully you did too. We've posted it on the Facebook page if you'd like to read it or learn more about their YouTube channel and the different work they do. I did mention I want to keep the theme on kids, and we're going to take a little bit of a turn, but this is out Christianity Today. Uh, Today, actually, said how I explain Barut's explosion to my kids. As Christian parents, our children must know that we will keep them safe, but that does not mean keeping them comfortable. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the World Wide Web. Just type The Common Good Radio Show into that Google bar and something good will happen, I'm sure. Hey, if you had to guess, by the way, Brian... What holidays would you guess we are celebrating today? Oh, just, gosh. Just guess. Any guess. No wrong answer. Uh, it is uh, National National uh, Hot Dog Day. Incorrect. You're wrong. I know I said there's no wrong answers, but that's actually a wrong answer. <laughs> National. It's Lighthouse Day. Nope. And it's also International Beer Day. Did you know that? Oh, God. Go out and celebrate tonight, my man. <laughs> are, you, are you not a beer guy, Brian? I'm going to put you on the spot on Christian Talk Radio. Uh, I am not a beer guy. It's not for any reason of like, I think it's wrong or sinful. I don't want to be that guy, but it is. Uh, I've never really had the taste for it. <laughs> I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of that guys out there going, hey. Yeah, <laughs> someone's listening. Like, Wait a minute. I am that guy. Hold, hold the phone. All right. Well, you can message us at the Facebook page and tell us that you think Brian is wrong. Um we only briefly touched on it, and I felt obligated for us to talk about Beirut a little bit, and I wasn't quite sure how to approach it. I felt like a lot of the – this isn't a news show, you know, so I felt like there's a lot of the news shows and organizations that are doing way better work than we could do in nine minutes. But I, I saw this article a little earlier today from Christianity Today. It says, how I explain Beirut's explosion to my kids. As Christian parents, our children must know we will keep them safe, but that does not mean keeping them comfortable. Why don't you get us into this article a little? Yeah, this is interesting. Written by Jason Casper in Beirut. Beirut, That's where he is. And I'll just say before reading uh, such a tragedy, and I've been fascinated by just watching videos and Mm -hmm. reading stories. I remember when it happened the other day, you and I were like, well, that's clearly an attack. Like, we'll learn about this bombing and to learn that it is just kind of negligence and just how what led to it is so heartbreaking and yeah. anyway our prayers for those families and that whole area Absolutely. Uh, but uh, jason casper writes our family was sitting down to dinner when the walls rumbled assuming it was just an unusual surge of electricity preceding one of lebanon's frequent power outages we readied to say our prayers and then came the boom the whole house shook an earthquake i wondered as we rushed our four children ages 7 to 13 outside to presume safety But there we found neighbors anxiously skimming through Twitter on their balconies, shouting out the news. 
Beirut had just suffered one of the largest non-nuclear explosions in human history. My nerves for my family's security settled when I learned it was not an earthquake, but then the political nerves took over. Was it an assassination, an Israeli strike? Reporting for Christianity Today from Cairo during the Arab Spring, our family had become somewhat accustomed to instability. But that was my realm, attending demonstrations, visiting attacked churches. Yet there was always a sense that life carried on like the ever calm waters flowing in the nearby Nile, where we would often board a felucca boat and float in peace. Our year in Lebanon has been much different. Within two weeks of our arrival, Israel and Hezbollah exchanged fire. Tensions rose. Within two months of our arrival, we were greeted with another popular uprising. Within a half a year of our arrival, the currency collapsed. And when you add instability and current events to Lebanon's history of war and famine, worry weighs not just on the reporter, but on the parent. The Lebanese are very adept at adjusting to crises. Uh, but to do so, we all needed to learn the sectarian system. This is a picture of President Michael Aon. I pointed out to our children on an autumn drive. His position is reserved for uh, the Maronite Christians of Lebanon. But then after a bend in the road, the banners changed and he pointed out other leaders. Uh, and he says the prime minister position, this one is for the Sunni Muslims, but he's not prime minister anymore after the uprising. He was assassinated 15 years ago. Fast forward now to this week's explosion. I walked my children down the street to overlook Beirut. A cloud of pink smoke rose from the Mediterranean shoreline. We're blessed to live in the mountains, a 30-minute drive from what was known as the Paris of the Middle East. While 300,000 Beirut residents are now without a home, we can go back inside and eat dinner. But we finished our prayers. I didn't eat much. There was too much to debrief. The children were calm, but they could tell another politics lesson was coming. My third daughter calls it our family pod, uh, podcast. We don't know what that explosion was, I told them. It may have just been an accident. Tonight, you will go to bed like the rest of us, not knowing for sure, hmm. and that's okay. But it might not be. I walk them through the possibilities. Hmm. Uh, and then 2,750 metric tons of ammonium nitrate detonated at the port. Lebanon has not witnessed explosions like this for several years, I told the kids, but we must be aware they might return. As of now, conspiracy theories are whirling, although there is no evidence of foul play. Uh, I'll just pause there. I just want to kind of take that in. How much uh, could you imagine walking through that in real time with your three kids? I mean, the kids are a little older, seven to 13 or four kids, he said. But walking your kids through that as they're watching it go on must have been pretty unbelievable. I can't even imagine. I, I do almost wonder if it's easier with kids my age, one and a half and two and a half, where oh, yeah. there's there's not really something that I their fear is more based on just the sound or if there's broken glass, but there's not like a, there's not an existential fear about, you know, attack. They don't understand those categories yet, but like I, even just watching the way that, you know, there's somebody that was setting off fireworks like in our backyard area well before 4th of July. And I saw how much that freaked them out. And, mm. you know, first Tuesday of the month, if we're playing outside, the, the right. tornado siren is like right down our block. And it, it's, it's frighteningly loud. And I, 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 again, I know that's not even comparable, but I've like seen the terror in their face. And I know that we're completely safe and it like breaks my heart. I can't even imagine having to navigate something like this. And you, you stop just short of this line here, which I thought was sort of like the anchor line here. He says, it's important for our kids to know that we will keep them safe, but it's more important for them to know that God will keep them, keep us in his care wherever we are. And I thought, what an interesting perspective in the midst of so much like fear and chaos and uncertainty 
to, to have that kind of wherewithal. Like this is the message I want to make sure that I leave with my kids, you know? Yeah. It's also interesting, man, as your kids get older, like we just said it last segment, we say it often, your kids are real young, what one and two, and my kids are like 11, 12 and 16. Uh, it, it kind of flips, right? Like mm. in, in the beginning, you want your kids to know that God will take care of them. And especially when they get older and get a little bit of independence, I find myself needing to remind myself that God will take care of my kids and they're mm. not mine and I can't protect them because right, quite frankly, right. they're always three and four years old in my mind. I told my 16 year old the other day, I said, you just need to understand that sometimes I look at you like you're six. Mm. <laughs> just, mm. uh, and it's, it's just a really hard part uh, as kids get older. He said, uh, let me just read how he ends up closing this out. He says, uh, he said to his kids, and soon he will uh, he will help you to help also. Your role might just be to be kids, to have fun with the others. You can lighten their spirits and free up their parents. And then we prayed and had dinner again. I have the privilege to live amid Middle East politics, he writes, and I trust my kids will benefit. But I believe the key to family stability in a crisis is found in those two practices. Communicate constantly, uh, consistently and give your lives to God. Hmm. By his grace, we trust he will keep us in the next crisis also. This is neither Lebanon nor America. It is simply our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. A really well-written article and a good glimpse for us, as you said, a little less newsy and more a glimpse into a family in the midst of that tragedy in Lebanon going, how do we wrestle with this with our kids? Yeah, and just a a reminder that I'm, I'm sure many people have at the forefront of their minds in whatever capacity we can be praying and helping and giving, you know, I think the call of the Christ follower is not just to care for, you know, us here and ourselves and our own, but also to look at the people globally who are struggling, who are hurting, who are living in fear. And uh, I think there's a lot of opportunities for us to do just that. All right. So that was a pretty heavy second hour. I thought, why not then let's end not only this hour, let's end the week with some good news. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for some good news. Oh my goodness, can you believe it? It's almost the weekend, which doesn't matter anymore at all in a pandemic anyway, but it's worth saying we're in the home stretch, Brian. We're almost there. Final segment of the day. We used to do Interweb Insanity. We should ask people. We should make a poll on Facebook. Should we bring back interweb insanity you miss it a little bit don't you a little bit but i i do like how uh the replacement of, of good news network on most days it is a it is a good replacement for it i i don't disagree especially in the sort of weirdness that we're in right now if you're unfamiliar with what brian is talking about goodnewsnetwork.org is a place you should bookmark make it your wallpaper obviously not all the stories are grand slams but there's a there's a lot of, a lot of really heartwarming stuff there and per usual i just put a bunch of links in the rundown, and I'm going to let Brian Fromm pick which one he would like to do first. Oh, I'm definitely going this one. Lost Puppy tracks down his vet's office and finds help coming home. A five-month-old pup wasn't savvy enough to find its way back home, but the dog is certainly clever because it found the vet's office. It showed <laughs> up wanting some help. Uh, the Putaraska Veterinary Clinic in Bangpu, Thailand, uh, posted surveillance video of the little dog showing up at their doorstep where it waited until someone let it inside. The black puppy was barking at the very door of the office where it had been receiving monthly vaccinations since it was one month old. Luckily, the vet office recognized their patient and reunited the pet with its owner. Separated for 15 hours, 
Uh, the owner and dog were very happy to see each other. Cute and very smart was their clinical assessment of the pooch. Who says dogs aren't smart? That's that's wonderful. <laughs> All right. This next one in just one headline is both touching and also like head scratching. It says uh, woman reunited with lost teddy bear containing late mother's voice. Thanks to Ryan Reynolds. That's like three three different stories. Yeah. It starts by saying losing a parent is one of the most painful parts of life. No matter how old we are, when they leave us, it can be a heart-wrenching experience. Our memories are all that are left of them, and happy reminders of their love turn into the most valuable treasures. That's how Mara Soriano felt uh, about the very special teddy bear that she tragically lost in her recent move to a new apartment. The Build-A-Bear plush toy didn't cost a lot, but it contained a recording of her late mother's voice telling her that she loved her and was proud of her. The bear called Mama Bear was in a backpack that contained electronics like an iPad and a Nintendo Switch. When the bag was stolen last week during the move, the 28-year-old girl was heartbroken, not for the gadgets, but for Mama Bear. So she posted online about the item lost in Vancouver, Canada, and the story behind it, which caught one viewer's attention in a big way. Diagnosed with cancer 10 years ago, Mara's mother, Marilyn, gave her daughter the bear as a gift in 2017 as her cancer progressed. Until her death last June, the gift felt even more special. The bear was basically the last reminder of the mom that I knew. It was her voice that I remember growing up. Luckily, the internet did its thing, and Mara's search soon went viral. Meanwhile, Mara was out searching. She put up posters, uh, dug through dumpsters, and communicated with others online. Actor Ryan Reynolds, a native of British Columbia, then posted a plea for its safe return, saying, I think we all need this bear to come home, he wrote. Along with the message, he also offered a huge incentive for the thief. A $5,000 reward, no questions oh, wow. asked. How good is that story? And then they found it. It says Tuesday night, Mars special yeah. bear came home. Man, yeah. that's a good one. I was worried that it was going to Ryan Reynolds did something bad in that one, but no. For Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> oh, that he was the one that stole the backpack? That's where your brain went? Or that's why she was a late mother. <laughs> Thanks oh to Ryan Reynolds. Gosh, Brian. Jeez, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You are, not a good a writer. you are not a writer for the Good News Network. It is the Good News Network. Next one. Trading a trumpet for a gun. New Orleans musicians are making a good deal with the city's youth. Uh, New Orleans is famous for jazz music, but the city also has a problem with gun violence, something that local jazz trumpeter Shamar Allen experienced while he was growing up. After hearing of the fatal shooting of a boy from the city's seventh ward, he thought he might be able to turn the surplus of trumpets lying around his house uh, into meaningful opportunities for changing the tune played by kids who might be susceptible to gun violence. Uh, People don't understand that these kids are trying and wanting to do other things, but there's just nothing for them to do. Uh, Alan posted a simple quid pro quo offer on social media, which read to the youth of New Orleans, bring me a gun. I'll give you a trumpet. No questions asked. Wow. Second, no questions asked in a row. Nice. Yeah, right. In order to ensure total secrecy, because Alan guessed the kids wouldn't make the switch if they feel they couldn't trust him. He contacted the mayor who put him in touch with the chief of police. The police department agreed that they would accept the guns without any strings attached and without asking anything about the kids. According to Allen, officials were happy, were as happy as he was just to see the weapons off the street. So far, Allen has collected four guns and completely depleted his stock of spare trumpets. One of them was a handgun with ammunition given to him by a young girl. He said, I would never suspect that she would have a gun. And she was the most excited about getting a trumpet, said Allen. That's someone that's putting it to good use right there. That's nice. That's a good story. We got two stories left. I think we can do this. Hero teacher spent every day in lockdown preparing food for his pupils and delivered 7,500 packed lunches. 
An award-winning hero teacher in England who spent each day preparing food for his students has made his final delivery after delivering 7,500 packed lunches. Zane Powell's. Powell's? Powell's? How would you say that? I'd go with Powell's. Zane Powell's, who is powerful. Nope, now it's dumb. (laughs) Diligently prepared 85 lunches each morning. Wait a minute. Hold on. 85 lunches each morning after fearing his students would struggle to access food when schools were shut during the pandemic. The determined teacher walked 7.5 miles every day, making his rounds for 17 weeks and told over 600 miles over the course of his runs in northeast Lincolnshire. The 48-year-old estimates that he carried roughly four tons of food during that time, but said it was all, quote, well worth it after seeing the smiles on the kids' faces. When the school where he packs lunches closed for the summer on July 17th, Zane delivered his final food packaging on the emotionally charged Friday afternoon. When I started these walks, I was concerned about the kids and their well-being, and I wanted to make sure that I could see them all, said Zane, who works at Western Primary School in the large coastal seaport of Grimsby. I needed to know if they were safe, if they were healthy, and if they had access to food. That That's a good teacher right there, man. The picture alone, you should just look at this article, look at the picture of this guy loaded up with all these meals. It's incredible. That's a crazy amount of walking that he did. It's just unbelievable. Uh, last one, Brooklyn landlord cancels rent for hundreds of tenants, setting an unprecedented example for others. Millions have been laid off in the last few weeks due to quarantine and stayed home orders, and that has made it impossible for many to pay their bills, including their rent. Some landlords have been more compassionate than others, especially this one Brooklyn landlord who has majorly stepped up to the plate. Stay safe, help your neighbors, and wash your hands, Mario Salerno wrote on the signs, which he posted at all of his 18 residential buildings in the borough. I want everyone to be healthy. That's the whole thing, he said. Paying rent is the expense causing the most anxiety right now, and that is why tenant organizers across the country are planning a national rent strike. Uh, Although New York instituted a 90-day ban on evictions, Governor Cuomo made it clear this week that he had no plans to waive rent Uh, Mario Salerno owns uh, around 80 apartments uh, in 18 buildings across Williamsburg and Greenpoint. And so he waived the rent, which is no small amount of money, hoping that others would do it as well. What a good job by that guy. And that's not a bad note to end on. Is there any uh, I'd love to know as we wrap up, Brian, what story was your favorite? I love that first one with the dog showing up at the vet's office. <laughs> you know, there are others that were much more meaningful, but the fact that the dog found its way to the vet's office and they were able to get it home. I don't know. That's like a Disney movie right there. <laughs> Plus, as a reminder, we typically get these stories from goodnewsnetwork.org. But if you ever have a story, even if it's one that you yourself were a part of, send it, send us a message over at the Facebook page, the common good radio show. We would love to share some of your good news. I know that I need to hear it. I know that we all could stand to see a little more good news in the world with all the craziness. So if you want to send us a message, we would love to hear from you. And uh, that's a decent note to end the week on, I think. Don't you think, Brian? Absolutely. That's a good one to go out on. Yeah, thanks for agreeing. Uh, we'll hope you join us again on Monday and all next week from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope you're laughing. 